Turn your Bibles to, the, to Matthew chapter 9. It's on page 814. Page 814 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you don't have a Bible, that Bible is for you to use this morning. If you don't own one, please take it home and make it your Bible. Page, nine, page 814, Matthew chapter 9. Uh, friends, for the last several weeks, we've, we've been in Matthew 8 and 9, and we're, uh, primarily Matthew records the unique authority of Jesus Christ through his miraculous works. In these miracles, Jesus showcased who he is and what he came to do, and so proved that he's the fulfillment of God's saving promises in the Old Testament. Jesus is the promised king, is he not? He's, he brought near God's kingdom, his, his saving rule. The great coming day when creation would be restored and sinners set free and, the, and God's enemies lick the dust and the curse be reversed. God's reign extending unhindered across the earth as the waters cover the sea. That day has been set in motion in the coming of Jesus the King. The miracles were like flashes of the new creation erupting in this age of sin and death. The sick were healed, the, the lame were made to walk, the blind were caused to see, even the dead were raised to life again. Uh, beloved, Jesus' miracles were not interruptions in the natural order. They were the restoration of it. We've been swimming in the waters of, of sickness and death and suffering and pain so long that those are the things that seem natural to us. But no, death is the great interruption, not the miracles. In the beginning, God created everything good and whole and right, and Jesus came to restore what was broken, to rehumanize that which was dehumanized by sin, to rescue and redeem what was lost. We turn today, our text is, wraps up that section in Matthew 9 and then looks forward to a new section in Matthew 10. Let's start reading together in, in verse 35 of Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, they... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to, to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer, deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. 
Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Friends, I think the main idea of Matthew 39, 35 to 10, 15 is this, this section of the scripture. The compassion of Jesus motivates the mission of Jesus. Or to put it more simply, Jesus' compassion motivates his mission. We see that in this text this morning. There's two points I think I'd like to draw out this morning. Number one, from verses 35 to 38 of chapter 9, the nature of Jesus' mission. We're going to learn more what that mission is. And then number two, we're going to, in verses 1 to 15 of chapter 10, we'll see the participants in Jesus' mission. Friends, I pray that through this passage, you might come to rejoice once again that Jesus is so full of compassion toward the lost and that we together might grow in our compassion towards sinners and, our, and grow in our passion to make Jesus, Jesus known. Number one, the, the nature of Jesus' mission. Well, Matthew gives us a summary of this mission, doesn't he? Right in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the, the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. Friends, apparently Jesus' ministry was three-pronged. He taught, he preached, and he healed. Now, because of the saturation of, of his miracles in chapters 8 and 9, I, I think that we might get the impression, and it would be the wrong one, that Jesus was merely an itinerant healer. That his main ministry was, was traveling around and fixing broken people. And while it's true that, yes, Jesus' ministry included both word and deed, friends, Jesus' deed ministry, his works, always served his word ministry. In other words, his miraculous works affirmed or authenticated what he taught and proclaimed. Jesus' word, his message testified of the kingdom, and his works testified to the kingdom. But let's not forget that Jesus' teaching and authority had, or excuse me, Jesus' teaching and preaching had an authority all of its own. Just as the crowds repeatedly stood in, in wide-eyed wonder at Jesus' miracles, they did the same in his teaching. Recall the crowd's reaction to Jesus' teaching in the hills of Galilee, in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verse 28 says that, that when Jesus saying, finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Friends, Jesus' works, as, as miraculous as they were, could not have been the end-all, be-all of his ministry because those, those miraculous works were temporary, weren't they? All those whom Jesus healed eventually died. Even Jairus' daughter, awakened from death by Jesus, died again. But the message that Jesus preached was eternally beneficial to those who accepted it. In Jesus was a, was a healing from, from a sickness far deeper and greater than any physical ailment. Jesus came to save people from their sins. As Jesus went about his ministry, crowds continued to throng to hear his teaching and to see his miracles. But, but friends, the size of the crowd was never his focus. It certainly was not the end goal. Jesus' concern wasn't the size of the masses, but the plight of the masses. Verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw the crowds with spiritual eyes. Friends, he viewed them through the lens of spiritual need. He didn't see the, the masses thronging around him as a means to some other end, did he? Jesus didn't use the crowds to gain a bigger platform for himself and his ministry. If he lived in today's age, Jesus would not have been snapping selfies of himself as he went about ministering at the size of the crowds. Look at this. It wasn't about building his brand. It was about helping their need. He didn't come to use the people, but to serve them. This text says that, that Jesus saw the crowd as sheep without a shepherd. Perhaps you didn't know this, but sheep are dumb. They're helpless animals. Goats can fend for themselves to some degree, but sheep, no way. They can't defend themselves from predators on the prowl. They have to rely on their shepherd to do that for them. If they wander off, they couldn't possibly find their way back home. No, the, the shepherd has to come and find them. So what is the plight of those who are like sheep without a shepherd? Well, they're utterly lost. Jesus saw the people of Israel in the same condition as Ezekiel's description of, of God's people in Ezekiel 34. Israel's religious leaders had utterly failed to feed and provide for and protect the sheep. We've already seen this in the Pharisees, right? They were more concerned about sacrifice than mercy. They cared more about their appearance than inner heart righteousness. And whenever the leaders fail, the people suffer. At this time, there was no king in Israel ruling from David's throne on behalf of the Lord. People of Israel lived subject to foreign domination in their own land. But far more destructive than the domination of Rome was the people's slavery to their sin. The reason that they were so lost, that they were like sheep without a shepherd, is because they had wandered like sheep from the Lord. They were helpless and they were harassed. Friends, did you notice as, as Beth read the scripture this morning in Ezekiel that it was the Lord God who promised to come rescue his sheep? But if we had kept reading in Ezekiel 34, we would have read this in verse 23. And I will set over them, I being Yahweh, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. So Ezekiel promised that the Lord himself would, would feed and, and provide for his sheep and rescue them. But then he also promised that his servant David, the, the great shepherd king, will also shepherd and feed his flock. They will have the same role and responsibility. Well, friend, how could this be? I mean, Ezekiel promised uh, or prophesied after David was long dead. Well, we know that Ezekiel referred to David as a stand-in for David's greater son. The great ruler promised from David's ancestral line, the Messiah. Friends, if, if Israel had read their Old Testaments carefully, they would have perceived that when the prophets foretold of the coming of the king, they simultaneously spoke of the coming of God to his people. They should have been looking for one who was, was both a man who had the royal pedigree of David in the royal line, but they should have been looking for one who had the divine power of God himself. 
to rescue them from their sin. Beloved, this is who Jesus Christ is. He is the good shepherd. In its richest biblical meaning, come to shepherd his flock. Friends, why did Jesus have such compassion for the crowds? Because they desperately needed what only he could provide, and they didn't even know it. When Jesus looked at the sin-sick masses, what arose in his soul wasn't disdain or impatience for their hard hearts. He didn't dismiss them as being beyond God's reach. What arose in Jesus' heart was compassion. Beloved, I think it would be hard and almost impossible to exaggerate the compassion of Jesus Christ. I don't know that you could ever over-celebrate or over-praise just how compassionate and merciful Jesus is. We saw it on display repeatedly in chapters 8 and 9. What did Jesus do when he saw the unclean? What was his first impulse when the leper crossed his path? He moved toward them. He moved toward the unclean. What, what flooded his heart wasn't revulsion, but pity. He rehumanized what had been dehumanized by sin and the curse. Friends, Jesus didn't merely act in love. He was the embodiment of love. The Puritan pastor Thomas Goodwin wrote that Jesus was love covered in flesh. As we've been going through Matthew, we've lingered on Jesus' authoritative teaching. We've meditated on his mighty power that caused even his friends to tremble at who he is. And in no way do I want to diminish those things in your mind about Jesus. All of those things contribute to this glorious portrait that the Gospels give us. But when we read the Gospels, what seems to be the dominant melody that should reverberate in our ears isn't Jesus' power, but his compassion, his mercy. The, the way that this authoritative and powerful and holy Son of God moves forward and touches and heals and cleanses those in desperate need of him, and yet so undeserving of him to meet their need. Friends, Jesus saw these, these crowds sick with sin and something inside him yearned to make them whole again. This is the same compassion that led Jesus to stagger up Calvary's hill with a Roman cross on his shoulder and then to yield himself to its humiliation and agony. Oh, friend, Jesus' heart bled for sinners long before his body did. On the cross, Jesus, our shepherd, laid down his life for the sheep. He gave his life so that we might live. Non-Christian friend, I wonder if you see yourself the way that Jesus does. You know, my guess is you don't. Perhaps you find it off-putting or even borderline offensive that Jesus sees you as needy, as the object of his compassion but friend, let me encourage you, this, this truth about our Lord shouldn't offend you, but cause your heart to weep for joy that your sin and rebellion against God does not garner the immediate wrath of your judge, but the compassionate attention of your good shepherd. We deserve, all of us, the, what our rebellion has merited. We deserve his wrath, and yet Jesus lived and died and rose again 
so that all who turn from their sin and embrace him by faith might not die like lost sheep in the terrifying abyss of God's judgment, but might graze eternally in green pastures, might drink from the still waters of his mercy. He came that you, friend, might have life in his name. Friends, this is the great aim of Jesus' mission. He came to save the lost. And notice what he does in verse 37. He invites others into his mission with him. It's a bit surprising, I think. Jesus didn't see the masses and, the, and immediately jump into a sermon and preach to them just how needy they were. Rather, he instructed his followers. He wanted them to see the crowds in the same way that he did. Perhaps that's why Jesus changed the metaphor from herding sheep to harvesting a crop. He wanted his disciples not to just see mere need, but great opportunity. Where others would have counted out such helpless people, Jesus counted them as part of his harvest. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The beleaguered sheep, friend, of verse 36 is the crop of verse 37 and 38. Now, th this idea of a harvest, it was a common image in the Old Testament, but it, it was mainly an image for judgment. We see that in Isaiah 17 and Joel 3 and even later from Jesus in Ma Matthew 13. But here, it's not judgment that's in view, but mercy. The Lord of the harvest is gathering the crop into his kingdom. Friend, when you read the headlines, when you watch the news, you know what much of what you're going to see are problems and sins and brokenness. And you might be tempted to think when you see the headlines and when you watch the news, there's no hope there for our world. But friends, don't let media catechize you. Let God's word do the shaping. Because praise God, Jesus sees the harvest as plentiful. If the silos aren't full of the crop, it isn't due to an off harvest. Jesus says it's a perpetual bumper crop. The fields are white. The grain is ready to be plucked. Instead, any deficiency in the harvest is due to a labor shortage. The laborers, Jesus said, are few. When Jesus said this to his disciples, friends, the laborers were very few. Like the crew was limited to him alone. He alone proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God at this time. There was a need for workers. Friends, praise God that over the years, over the two millennia that since Jesus ascended into heaven, praise him for the millions of workers that the Lord of the harvest has raised up to reap in his harvest fields. After Jesus has ascended, harvest workers took the gospel from Israel in all directions. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And then eventually in God's good providence, harvest workers came to the United States. And then in 1991, planted in Goodyear, Arizona, Calvary, Goodyear. Praise God for Chris Landefeld and the John Filkey and the scores of harvest-minded believers who have linked arms to establish Calvary Goodyear and then now Redeeming Grace Church. But beloved, if you were to roam our streets and our neighborhoods and our workplaces, if you were to go with Jesus, if he was to accompany you on that 
on that tour. Friends, if he was to walk through Goodyear and Buckeye and Avondale and Litchfield Park and Tolleson, you know what I think he would tell us? The same thing that he told his disciples on that day. The harvest is plentiful. There are people waiting and ready to be engaged with the gospel. But oh, there's still a labor crisis. More workers are needed still. Workers who invest themselves in strategizing and working and funding and resourcing gospel ministry here in the Southwest Valley. If Jesus were to take us on a tour of the valley, the entire thing, and then across Arizona, and then spread out to the southwest, and then widen even further still to the entire United States, friends, he would say the same thing. It wouldn't matter to him which way the political winds were blowing, or which way society as a whole seemed to be heading. The problem is not with the harvest. It's plentiful. The need is for laborers. When King Jesus surveys from his throne, the pockets of this globe that seem to be have the least gospel presence, whether it's in Saudi Arabia or North Korea or Morocco or secularized Europe or the four billion plus people who have little access to the gospel across the globe. Jesus does not see the situation as hopeless. Friends, he doesn't view the darkness with a grim resignation that the father's work is just never going to get done in those places. No, he looks out at the peoples of the world with compassion and with a brimming optimism because the harvest fields are white. The crop is plentiful. But where are the laborers? Where are those who are willing to devote their lives to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to labor in his harvest field to make disciples? Where are those friends whose holy ambition it is to spread abroad the fame of the king? Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon in a sermon that he preached from this text on the Lord's Day morning of August 17th, 1873 in London, England at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. An extended quote here from Spurgeon. He said, suppose an angel should take you upon his wing and poise you in mid space some hundreds of miles above the earth where you could look down on the globe with, with strength and eyesight. Suppose you, you rested there and the world revolved before you in 24 hours, the sunlight gradually coming upon all portions of it. And suppose that with the sunlight there, there should be rendered visible certain colors that would mark where there was grace, where there was idolatry, where there was atheism, and where there was Roman popery you would grieve to see only here and there upon our grove like little drops of dew, bright marks of the grace of God. But various shades of darkness would show you that the whole world lies in the wicked one still. And if the vision changed and you saw the two hemispheres spread out like a map and transformed into a cornfield with corn all white for the harvest, how sad would you be to see here and there men reaping their little patches, doing the best they can, but the great mass of the corn untouched by the sickle. You would see leagues of land where never an ear was reaped that we know of from the foundations of the world. You would be grieved to think that God's corn is spoiling, men whom he has made in his own image and made for immortality, perishing for lack of the gospel. Beloved, let Jesus' words 
arrest your attention. There is no more nobler work or more important labor than that of the king's harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, the solution to this labor shortage is for workers to volunteer, right? We need men and women who will step to the front and sign their name on the dotted line to work the fields. The doer in me really likes that, right? See the need, meet the need. But friends, is this what Jesus prescribed to his disciples as the solution to this labor shortage? Now notice what Jesus said is the blueprint for harvest success. Therefore, because the harvest is so plentiful and the labor so few, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Friends, our first instinct as harvest-minded Christians should not be to go or to do, but to pray. This is the Lord's harvest after all. Only he can send the laborers out. Only he can bring the harvest in. Oh, our first responsibility must be to pray for laborers. We have to pray that God would raise up workers and give them gospel success in the fields. You know, friends, there, there are a ton of things that, that should rightly form the content of our prayers. But I wonder, do you pray for workers in the king's harvest? I'm serious. Do you pray that the Lord will send gospel laborers into the fields? Do you pray for more healthy churches in the West Valley? Do you pray that God might one day send from our church pastors and church planters and missionaries? Oh, friend, this is what we want. We want to make mature disciples here, and then we want to send some of those disciples out as God calls them to make their life's ambition laboring in the harvest. We want to be a sending church. But that will never happen merely by gritting our teeth or putting our shoulder to the plow in ministry, or maybe putting some signs out in the foyer that say bold evangelism and urgent mission. It will happen as the prayers of the saints of Redeeming Grace Church bend heaven's ear toward us and the Lord of the harvest answers. Perhaps you've wondered why every other month our prayer services focus on praying for our evangelism and missions efforts around the world. Friends, we pray for these things and for that purpose because we're participants in the King's harvest. And he told us to pray this way. Two weeks ago, Dan Diffie reminded us that prayer reveals our heart's affections. Yes and amen, 100% right. But friends, prayer also shapes our heart's affections and turns them toward the Lord. That's one reason I constantly encourage you to come to our prayer meetings on Sunday night. Join us in prayer, not just because we're dependent upon the Lord of the harvest to do his work, but because I believe the Lord will move us out toward the fields as we pray. He mobilizes us as we call upon him. Friends, Jesus' instruction here is one reason that the pastoral prayer before the sermon is the way it is. Uh, perhaps you've noticed that we elders don't merely pray for gospel work in our church, but we pray for the gospel to go forth effectively from churches across the valley in Arizona and across the world. 
Friends, we don't want to be small-minded to think that only our needs matter. So myopic to think that the food is only good if it's cooked at our restaurant. No, we rejoice wherever the gospel is preached faithfully. So we pray for other local churches in Goodyear, across Phoenix, and throughout the world. The harvest is plentiful globally. And so we lift up our eyes and pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into the fields. Friends, let's prioritize what Jesus prioritized. Let's recognize people in need. Let's see them as Jesus does. Their need is opportunity for the gospel. So let us pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to abundantly meet that need. Number two, the participants in Jesus's mission, not just the nature of his mission, but now we see the participants. In verses 1 to 15 of chapter 10, I think that what we're seeing is the Lord of harvest answering the prayers he had just instructed the disciples to pray. From this larger group of his followers, Jesus called to himself 12 men and then sent them out as an extension of his own ministry. These, these 12 formed Jesus' inner circle. They received from him a special commission and special training throughout his ministry. First of all, notice how many disciples Jesus called. He could have whittled the number down surely to any number, right? Two, seven, 13, 258. But he called 12. Why was that? Well, the number 12 was highly symbolic, wasn't it? The 12 sons of Jacob formed the tribal heads of the nation of Israel, God's old covenant people. These 12 tribes comprised the people of God. And so by calling 12 disciples, Jesus, friends, is shifting salvation history forward. He's forming his new covenant people, this people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who would follow him by faith. These 12 disciples, he then calls apostles in verse 2. The word apostle simply means sent one. These 12 were, were like special envoys of the king that carried his message. The apostles bore witness to Jesus in his life and death and especially in his resurrection. Jesus would say later in his, in his ministry that he was building his church. He would say it explicitly. But we see that building project in motion here in the calling of the 12. Jesus is, is pouring out the apostolic concrete, right? He's laying the foundation of the church. The apostles' preaching of the true gospel would be that foundation. And in these 12, notice, we see displayed the limitless authority of King, of King Jesus. The same authority that he exhibited in his miraculous works, he gives to the 12. It's incredible. Imagine a man so authoritative that he not only possessed authority over the spiritual and physical realms, but he had the wherewithal to dispense that authority out. He wired authority capital to his disciples' account while not draining his account at all. Friends, there's just no parallel to this. I know you'll agree with me that Michael Jordan is the best, the greatest basketball player of all time. But MJ's greatness stops with him. He has no ability to give me his athletic gifts. How great would that be? I wouldn't be here. <laughs> I love you all. 
But Jesus' authority is such that he can give it to others whenever he wants to. The last thing I want you to notice about these disciples is their ordinariness. Friends, Jesus didn't call to his inner circle the Galilean version of the Avengers. These men were not particularly special. Peter, Simon, heads the list of disciples in each of the Gospels. Even Matthew says here, first Simon, who is called Peter. Peter seemed to be the, the first among equals. He, along with his brother Andrew and James and John, the son of Zebedee, were fishermen. These were blue-collar dudes, no doubt a little rough around the edges. Other than those guys, we really know very little about the rest. These disciples weren't the influential philosophers or government officials or noblemen. They were profoundly ordinary. But they were summoned and sent by someone extraordinary. Even among his apostles, Jesus called what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. I trust this encourages you, friends. I don't see anyone here with capes on either. Most of, it, in the, most of us in this room are profoundly ordinary. But praise God, it's not our pedigree or our capabilities that provoked the Spirit to call us. No, God called us nobodies to make much of somebody so that we might boast of his grace to everybody. If you look closely, this foundational group of disciples reminds you of the unity and diversity of the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. They were unified in their mission, but they came from diverse backgrounds. This mission team included Matthew, whom Rome had endorsed as a tax collector. And it also includes Simon the Zealot. He was part of a revolutionary political group devoted to overthrowing Rome, Roman rule. Now both of them were held captive by Jesus' grace and linked together by a higher cause, the gospel of the kingdom. And of course, you can't help but notice the last name on the list, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Think about this. Jesus called to himself intentionally the one who would eventually betray him. Judas didn't just slip through the cracks. Jesus didn't make a recruitment blunder. No, he willingly brought Judas near, knowing the role that he would eventually play in Jesus' death. Even that, friends, shows Jesus' compassion in his heart for sinners. In verses 5 to 15, Jesus sent the called on a special short-term mission. And I think, friends, what we're seeing here in these verses is this commissioning by Jesus serves as a preview of his later great commission of his disciples in Matthew 28. And by extension, that commission to us is the church. He charged the disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. But listen, I want you to understand there is something important here that we got to get. There are things about this mission that are, that are utterly unique in time and space in redemptive history. Okay, so, so we're not meant to read this passage and, and draw a straight line application to us in our, in our lives and ministry. That's a bad hermeneutic. Okay, don't, don't do that. 
The interpretive blunders are legion <laughs> in this passage by people who try to apply Jesus' words to his disciples, you know, his words to his disciples directly to themselves. Okay, so think what might happen if we do that. We might wrongly assume from verses five and six that salvation is only for the Jews and limit our preaching of the gospel to them. Or from verses seven to eight, that the Lord wants our ministry methods to include both miraculous healings and exorcisms. Or from verses eight to 10, that, that ministry should have no resourcing at all. Or from verses 12 to 15, that all missionaries today should find a person of peace that, who could be some sort of spiritual bridge before they can preach the gospel in that place. Believe it or not, that is taught. No, we need to remember that this mission is unique. It came at a unique moment in salvation history in the arrival of the Messiah. And many of these things are not repeated in the same way to us and in the rest of the New Testament. However, we can learn from this mission. The New Testament does build out and expand upon certain theological principles that we see here. Notice in verse 5 and 6, Jesus limits the scope of this mission to Galilee. The disciples weren't, take the, weren't to take the roads to the Gentiles, to the north or the Samaritan regions to the south, but rather they were to go to the lost sheep of Israel. They were to proclaim to God's people that God's king had come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Friends, don't misconstrue this. Jesus obviously cares for the Gentiles and the Samaritans. He had healed, right, the, the Roman centurion servant and cast out demons from the Gentile demoniacs. He would eventually target other Gentiles in his ministry. His work on the cross broke down every barrier between Jew and Gentile. He would one day commission us all to take the gospel to the peoples of the world so that we might, so that they all, together with us, might worship and praise him. But God's promised kingdom was proclaimed to Israel first because they had a special covenant with the Lord. They were his special people through whom he brought the Messiah. So what's tragic in this scenario is that in Jesus' ministry, on the whole, the Jews rejected him. They rejected this good news of the kingdom. They failed to repent and put their trust in Jesus as God's prophet and Messiah. And so after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the focus shifted. The good news continued to be preached in Israel, but Jesus then added a new dimension to the mission. The message of the gospel was now to be proclaimed throughout the whole world and to all peoples. Friends, this is why Paul wrote in Romans 1 about the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentile. He's speaking of a salvation historical pattern. And this mission, this first mission of the apostles was shaped by that pattern. They were, go to, they were to go to the Jews first. In verse 8, Jesus instructed the apostles to do the very works that he did. Given this unique time in redemptive history, they were given the privilege of bearing witness that the king had come by authenticating the gospel through the mighty works of Jesus. But here's the deal. There, there were isolated times that we hear of the apostles doing miraculous works, but it did not seem to be widespread by any means. Luke records the disciples returning from their mission, marveling that the demons were sub subject to them. After the resurrection, God did miraculous works through Peter and Paul. But the evidence really is, is quite limited. And nowhere 
Does Jesus or the apostles instruct us to do these same types of works? We're not told to expect these types of miraculous works to be a normal part of gospel ministry. Friend, the issue is not whether God can work miracles. We know that he can. I'm not discounting the fact you may have seen God do amazing things in your lifetime. But what I'm saying is that when Jesus commissions his, his disciples in the church in Matthew 28, the authority that he gave is for the purpose of making disciples. We go in the name and in the authority of the king to bear his message as his ambassadors. If God ever accompanies ministry with miraculous works, that his, that's his prerogative, not ours. What Jesus commands in verse 9, we're just going to work through this. There's a lot of stuff here. We're going to work through it. What Jesus commands in verse 9 may seem overly Spartan. The disciples weren't to acquire funds for their journey or outfit it with extra clothes or shoes or equipment. Rather, Jesus taught the disciples that, that what God calls, he's going to provide for. The mission sender is the mission provider. Jesus taught the disciples a fundamental lesson that is true of all gospel workers, friends. The mission is more important than stuff. The motivation of ministry of the gospel shouldn't be to acquire possessions, but rather reliance upon the Lord to meet our needs. Notice the reasoning that Jesus gave in verse 10. Don't acquire monies and goods for the journey for, here's the reasoning, for the laborer deserves his food. So friends, Jesus was not at all teaching that those who minister the gospel shouldn't be compensated, but it mattered how they were compensated and by whom they were compensated. Because the message of the kingdom is freely received by grace, the apostles should not charge unbelievers to hear God's gracious kingdom message. Paul picked up this principle in his ministry, didn't he? Likewise, missionaries throughout church history this is one reason that, that missionaries start out being supported by those who send them. They don't demand a fee from the lost sheep in order to get them to the shepherd. So how were these disciples to survive? Well, verses 11 to 13 make it clear that the disciples were to rely on the hospitality of worthy hosts. Those who esteemed their mission highly because they esteemed Jesus highly. One quick note, Paul quotes Jesus' statement, for the laborer deserves his food, or the laborer deserves his wages, in 1 Timothy 5.18. You remember the context there? He was teaching Timothy about the responsibility of the local church to compensate elders, and specifically elders who labor in teaching and preaching. So what, what should we take from that? Well, gospel workers shouldn't charge a fee to unbelievers to preach the good news to them. But once people come to faith and a church is established, the church should joyfully and eagerly set aside funds to support elders and particularly the ones who labor to bring God's word to them. Friends, in, in many ways, you can just see here the gospel version of the circle of life. I mean, pardon my Disney mind, right? What happens? The Lord of the harvest sends out laborers into his harvest. They go eagerly for the sake of the name and not for material gain. But once a church is established, the church then provides for the needs of the ones who bring them the gospel so that more might be sent out to do the same. Friends, this is what Christians have been doing for nearly 2,000 years. 
Christians and churches give generously to support gospel workers so that gospel work might multiply from them. So friends, thank you. Thank you for prioritizing this. What a blessing it is for me to devote myself full time to pastoral ministry, not, not have to get another job. But I labor specifically in this role of teaching and preaching without distraction. Thank you for the way that you value that. This type of giving honors the Lord and propels the gospel. Finally, we see in verses 13 to 15 something of the seriousness and urgency of the disciples' mission. Jesus in verse 13 said that those who receive the disciples and show hospitality to them would receive a blessing and a greeting of peace, but not so for those who reject them. The disciples' greeting to those who reject them returns like an uncashed check. Verse 14, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Friends, to reject Jesus' disciples and fail to listen to their message is, in, in fact, an outright rejection of Jesus because their message was his message. What they proclaimed was him, that the gracious king had come. So when the Jews would, would, would leave a Gentile territory and step back into Jewish land, they would, they would shake the, the dust from their, their shoes and their clothes as a symbolic gesture of, of disassociation with the Gentiles. But here the disciples were to do that to Jews who rejected them and their Lord. The words of verse 15 are chilling. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. My oh, friend, when God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed those cities for their high-handed wickedness. So great was the sin of those cities that they even rejected the Lord's angels. Remember that? Genesis 19, instead of showing them hospitality when they came to Lot's house. And throughout the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah were these emblems, these symbols of God's judgment and justice for sinners who reject the Lord. That temporal judgment of Sodom pointed forward to the great eternal judgment day when all stand before the Lord and the books are opened. And Jesus said it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day than for those who willfully reject Jesus' messengers and his message. Their fate will be far worse because with greater light and greater privilege comes greater responsibility. In Jesus, the kingdom had dawned. The king had arrived. His, his message was now being spread through his mission. And so rejecting him meant eternal ruin. So friend, again, come to Jesus while you're able. He's a compassionate Savior whose heart weeps for sinners. If you reject Jesus, you reject the one who is life. The one who created you and came to redeem and to reconcile you to God. If you trust in him. But if you stiff arm the Lord of glory, on the day of judgment, you'll not have another chance. By rejecting such goodness, you'll forever know God's justice. And with, like with Sodom, God will be glorified in it. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we do today what you instructed us to do. We pray for laborers in your harvest. Oh, Father, make us a harvest-minded church. Give us joy to be about this type of work. Send from us those who will do this work. Help us to partner with people around the country and around the world to do this work. Father, we will long to see the gospel go forth through us in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, together through this church. We thank you for what we see of, of our Lord Jesus and his calling of the disciples and their initial mission there in Galilee. Oh, Father, we ask that you would equip us for this task like you equipped them. Outfit us like you outfitted them with your clear provision and protection. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.